Some of you have heard this uh, story, or my story, I should say, uh, before. Uh, my story of when I came to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And um, I was about Ezra's age, my son, about seven or eight years old. Uh, he seemed to be nine. And uh, back then they had the projectors, so my uh, dad brought home the projector, put on the reel, and we watched a movie called Pilgrim's Progress. At the time, I didn't realize it's one of the best books ever written, but uh, uh, it was based on a book, and it starred Liam Neeson, actually one of his first roles as an actor. And this story of Pilgrim's Progress, written by uh, John Bunyan in a prison, is an allegory that points towards the Christian life and what it means to follow Jesus. And this guy Pilgrim walked around, and he had this huge backpack on with all the, it was heavy. And he said, I've got to get rid of this burden. And everybody he came across was trying to give him ways on how he could get rid of his burden. There's a worldly wise man who told him there was a, a city of all these distractions he would go to. And he, he kept looking for a way to get rid of the burden. And there's even a, a character that popped in and out and changed into different characters to distract him who represented the Lord of lies, who represented Satan. And for me, the kid, it, it took the, the gospel story, the truth, and woke up my imagination, and it woke me up to the story of the gospel. And when Pilgrim finally comes to the cross on this hill in Calvary and he understands who Jesus is, it's an amazing scene when that burden falls off his back and just tumbles over and over down the hill. And uh, they changed his name from Pilgrim to Christian at that point, and he got a friend named Evangelist. And they went on this journey towards the celestial city from that point forward. They were looking forward to that city. They still had to journey on after he trusted in Jesus, and yet they journeyed on. And that, that story awoke my imagination, and it's amazing how stories can do that, isn't it? Stories can help us to understand abstract truth or to look forward to something that God has for us. And so uh, one of the things we talk about when we come to the scriptures is we talk about the fact that this is indeed God's story. Yeah, it applies to our story, and there are many practical things in here, but overall, this is God revealing himself to you and I. And I find it amazing when we open this book and we, we begin with God's story, and um, it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. It goes on to say that God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And he says, near the end, he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. It's amazing as we go through this chapter and you see that he spoke and there was light. He spoke things into existence. I don't think we understand that power, do we? I mean, movies try to steal from it, right? And have that in movies, but we don't ever see a real human to speak and things become. Uh, it's an amazing piece of truth. 
And yet out of all of that creation, out of everything God made, it says this. So he created mankind, male and female, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. We are created in the image of God. That is why human beings, we see, can write stories. And we have all this technology in here that has grown, these buildings, these lights, uh, throughout the centuries. We keep inventing and creating. And that's part of the image of God in us. And as we enter into this heaven series, I want us to remember that, that one of the big things we talk about here at Incline Church is story and identity. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is as those created in God's image. And as those created in God's image, we are to reflect who God is. And it's an amazing imprint on us. And because of sin and rebellion and trying to be like God, a lot of times we forget that we are image bearers. We forget our identity. The world tells you that your identity should be based on all of these things, career, possessions, looks, power, prestige, relationships. And yet, we are to reflect God. And one of the ways that we best reflect God is in the use of our imagination, in the use of our minds. It's amazing how God created us to imagine, and all these things in here, all the technology that we have, truly comes from and points to imagination. Why? Because stories happen in the mind. People dream and think about them first. Ideas happen in the mind. People dream and think about, what if I did this? Or what if we could figure out a way to get everything into a little phone? Our TVs, everything, into this phone comes with an imagination. And then when we pair that with creativity, God has given us an amazing opportunity, hasn't he? The songs we sing today came out of somebody's imagination and their creativity, putting the melody and the notes and the song together as one in different instruments. And that's how God created us. He's a creative God and he wants us to be creative. And we've been talking about heaven and we're in the midst of our Heaven series. Last week we started it. It's all online. Well, Lord willing, it will all be online. Never know with our mobile stuff. But uh, last week's is online. And last week we talked about the reality that there's only two destinations. All of us are created for eternity. And our eternity can either be spent in darkness and gloom, separated from God, or in the very presence of Jesus, our Savior, who came and died on the cross for our sins. We celebrated that just a few weeks ago on Easter. He rose again. And so we have those two destinations. And we talked about what happens in between now and Christ returns, the, the present heaven. And now we're going to move towards looking to that eternal home, that final resting place, that new heavens and new earth that are talked about in the scriptures. And as we do so, I wanted us to imagine and, and to tap into and rediscover heaven because I've taught through heaven before and honestly it can get pretty academic right we can go through and we can look and study and parse the words and the scriptures and mine everything we can out of it but I think God wants us to take what he's given us and to be excited and to look forward to being in heaven and and some of the ways we do that are pictured in stories in um, second corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
uh, we read this. It says uh, in, in chapter 2, and see, I think I have part of it up here. Um, I'm going to read a few verses right here before, ch- before verse 9. It says, You, among the mature, do we impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which is decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It goes on to say, we have the Spirit of God in us if we follow Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me, it's as we, through the Holy Spirit, we tap into the wisdom of God. The, the words of this book become alive and we see how God inspired creative and amazing writing throughout the Proverbs and the Psalms and Song of Solomon. And even in the description we're going to see in Revelation, the creativity of God comes out. And it says that what God has done is beyond what the heart of man has imagined. God has prepared things for us, good works for us to walk in people for us to witness to. And so, as we think about that today, I wanted to do a little something different. Uh, we have an author in our midst, and uh, I've heard, and well, I've read uh, things she's written before. And so Amy Lee, young one's wife, uh, she's an author, and, and she loves to ponder about heaven is one of the things I've learned. And so throughout this series, we're going to invite her up to share some of the things she's written and thought about. And today, she's going to share a short story with you. And uh, it's called The Ferryman. And I want you to sit back and listen and follow along and make the connections spiritually that are there. And um, at the end, she'll bring it all together and share uh, why God put that on her heart. Um, And so, Amy, if you wouldn't mind coming on up and sharing with us um, this short story this morning. Thank you. Just gonna keep talking till oh okay. Awesome. All right. I'll just go ahead and start. The old ferryman's words were familiar and well worn, like the pole in his hands that had smoothed silken over time. Over the years they had shaped themselves into a lilting chant, a call that winged its way over the water. The ferryman was a faithful soul. He had lived most of his life within a stone's throw of this riverbank and spent most of his waking hours with his back turned to the lush, live landscape to which he belonged. Each day, he issued an invitation over the fog-shrouded water to the worn land opposite and waited for a summons from the other side. On many days, only silence met his description of the country behind him, and his words seemed to vanish in the river's gray mist and the unrelenting lapping of its waters at his feet. 
but on other days, a voice would answer. Through a second split in the fog, or in the ferryman's own patient cadences, a man or woman or child would glimpse the green-gold terrain and seek passage. He would find them craning for another look as the small ferry arrived. Rarely were these passengers packed for the journey. Some, laden with belongings, turned back when they saw that the ferry would not bear a load much greater than themselves. Those who did come were drawn by a yearning they could not always explain. Some were fearful, some curious, some exhilarated, and some relieved. But once on board, all of them asked the ferryman what it was like where they were going. And he would laugh a great laugh, like the rumble of boulders rolling, and tell him his own story. How he, too, had crossed the river as a young man. How he'd roamed the sun-dappled foothills and skimmed rippling meadows to fill his lungs with as much crisp, bracing air as they could hold. Even the air is different up there, he would say, motioning them close, inviting them to see that it still snapped and sparked in his bright eyes. Beyond the foothills were the mountains, and beyond the mountains even higher peaks, all veined with trails forged by travelers and studded with towns where they had chosen to make their homes. A man could spend years savoring the sights and surroundings of one slope alone. Ah, yes, he himself had visited as many villages and overlooks as he could before coming back content to settle by the river. His words were enough to make his hearers smile and spring eagerly from the boat when it docked, leaving the ferryman with the echo of his own voice. His memories were dimmer now, he knew. He could not recall as sharply the sweet tang of buttermilk cultured from the cows on those thousand hills or the chill of the gray-blue morning mist, but surely these things were still there. Once he had seen them all. It was late summer, the time of year when the zephyr glided down from the mountains with the faint scent of honeyed wildflowers, that the boy appeared. The ferryman had paused for his midday meal at the river's edge. When he looked up into the youthful face, the smoked trout and new potatoes were momentarily forgotten. His brow furrowed deep for a moment as he trawled his memory. He knew the lad. A year ago, the ferryman guessed, a year ago or more. Hair the color of autumn flame, questions that had tumbled over one another with eager thirst, feet that he thought would fair launch off the sturdy bottom of his weathered boat. The memory was dim, but he knew these green eyes for the star-like wonder that had suddenly filled them. This boy had fallen silent halfway through his river trip, as if he were satisfied to discover things for himself, as if he hardly dared believe the scope of the adventure before him. Now he stood before him, a grin playing across his ruddy cheeks. The ferryman urged him to stay, holding out his lunch in welcome, but the boy was bound for other destinations before nightfall. He had only come to thank the man who had ushered him safely across the river. With a merry, firm grasp of hands, the youth pulled him close in a strong embrace. The ferryman caught a hint of sweet grass and other fragrant, fleeting things, and he was gone. The scent remained with the ferryman long into the evening. He ate his supper cold by the hearth fire, tasting very little. The blithe flames popped and crackled, beckoning him with flickering arms to its blazing circle of warmth, then weakened to embers, and finally faded to silent gray ash. In the morning, he set out. The ferryman walked for a long time, his gait quickened by excitement and the good, glad confirmation of things he remembered. 
The first mountain was a grassy little brother of the giants in the, de- in the distant range. He slowed his pace to listen to the tidal roll of the wind among the trees. Ah, it was good to see again that the cherished details of his chance had a real origin. The scattering of gold leaves across the path, the long-lashed cows that watched him with patient curiosity. A farmer and his family stopped to talk with him over their split-rail fence, offering a tin cup of milk brimming with cream. Yes, even the hospitality. He slept in guest beds, haylofts, and tiny in-rooms on his way up the mountain. The rest and the daily rejoicing gave him strength. All that he had ever known to be true of this place, he found moving and growing and flourishing around him. But after the ideal of the first few days, on a path curving downward from the first peak, the bounds of the ferryman's memory came to light. He bent to pick a scarlet wildflower and started back with a pained cry. The dark-veined petals were as beautiful as he remembered them, but the slender stem bristled with fine silver spines. He recalled vaguely that he had made the same mistake before, which was no doubt why his admiration for this small beauty was tinged with a little reverence. He had forgotten. On the second slope, the ferryman found the towns he had mentioned so fondly to his passengers, but the trails between them were not as clearly marked as he had thought. On many, he was forced to forge and scrabble his way onward to the next town with only a stranger's general directions or a far-off faint glow of houses to lead him. At the last familiar village, he paused, wondering if, after all, his old bones shouldn't return to his own hearth and home to live out their remaining days in comfortable rhythm. But the thought of the hearth and its last tired, unfed fire made the ferryman shake his head. No. He had set his face to the mountains, and to the mountains he would go. After that day, he lost count of the trails and the days he'd walked. His mind was no longer on his progress, but on the steps immediately before him, and on the surroundings of each day. One afternoon, a wood thrush alighted in the high, bare branches of a tree to sing, and something in the hushed scene set off an ache that moved him to tears. He could not say why. The known mingled with the new in this country, sharpening even familiar things to a point of wonder. The fog that descended on the high mountains struck him the same way. The ferryman was surprised to find it as he ventured upward, but it wasn't like the smoky, cotton-like fog over the river. These were whole billows of obscuring white and gray through which he had to fight his path. After the first hour in the thick mist, he felt true fear. He didn't know how much time passed as he wandered hidden in those heights. He began to talk out loud, but although the grandest words he had were the old ones he knew by heart from chanting across the river, these soon faded. Come and see. Come taste sweet fruit in season. Come rove golden hills and be satisfied. Here find purpose. Here take joy. Did he know his own purpose? Had he true joy? The verses slowed, grew cold on his tongue. In the stillness, he became more afraid, more alive, more tender of heart than he had ever been in his life. Night fell. The weary ferryman found a small hollow in the side of a rock and made a bed from dry leaves and pine needles. He fell asleep wondering if he would wake to the same bleak view in the morning. He dared not wonder about any other days ahead. But when he woke, he could feel that he was better fit to breathe the air. The bottoms of his feet were as thick now as the old rowing calluses on his hands, and his ears. Sometimes he thought he heard wordless music in the mist, 
like soft strains from lands far away. They stirred in him a daring spark of hope, and he felt he could pass all his days in this lightless terrain, if only he could be sure of hearing those echoes. Such a guarantee wasn't his to make, but even as his heart leapt and failed him by turns in all the hours that passed, the ferryman felt he ought to make an appeal. For he had a growing awareness of a presence besides his own there, something that flashed through the snatches of music, something that rooted the restlessness that had brought him to this place. With the sense of it closing in around him, the ferryman opened his dry mouth, and out of terror or deep relief or both, he uttered hoarsely, Help. The change was imperceptible at first. The low wind picked up pine needles and sped them along the ground before the weary traveler raised his eyes. Then, within the span of a hundred of the ferryman's breaths, came an unmistakable shift. The fog lightened, lifted, cleared. It rolled away upward towards the peak, and the ferryman blinked, disoriented by the brightness of daylight. His eyes stung as he pried them open. How long had he been walking in the mist? There was no way to tell, but the thought was forgotten as he spied a shining ribbon in the low distance. His river. He sprang to his feet. Home! Life! The ferryman did not fly over the paths. He was a sturdily built man. But he pounded down the lane and through a field now ripe for harvest, keeping his eye fixed on the silver water. Laughter swelled in his chest at the thought of his own cottage and his ferry and the ripe vegetables in his garden and the faces that would greet him from the far shore, and his feet suddenly slowed. The ferryman turned back to look at the high mountains. Sun and fog danced close together over treetops and far tundra, hinting at unexplored routes and distant melodies he had yet to hear. There on the path, for the first time, the ferryman knew that he belonged in both places. Yes, he was made for the mountain as well as the river. A full life would require the joy and challenge of making sense of the world for his ferry passengers, as well as the uncertainty and ongoing discoveries he grasped alone, and yet not alone at all, up in the thin air. He didn't know how such an arrangement would work. Not yet. Whether his voice would someday grow strong enough to carry to the river from the mountaintops, or whether his feet would gain the strength to run swiftly between the two. But for now, the realization was enough. Days later, the ferryman stood by his river once again, filling his lungs with breath for a new call. And when the words went out, with them went went an unbidden tune, a changing melody that highlighted a different word or phrase with each iteration. The startled ferryman found he could not direct the music any more than he could move the mist, but he heard and noticed each verse as it pierced the river's gloom. His chants had turned to songs. They carried a note that had never been in his speech before and would always mark it ever after. It was the same note that had been born in the scent by the young boy and which would find its way into the work and journeys of all who would rise and follow after. A note of broken awe, of reclaimed wonder, of wild abandon. I shared the first part of the ferryman at an Arts Guild meeting three years ago. And when I finished, someone asked where I had gotten the idea for the story. Um, I hesitated and said, Well, I've been praying for one of my family members to come to Christ for 20 years now. During that time, I've thought about what it is that I'm calling him to. 
Sometimes I wonder if I've been so intent on getting him across the water that I've missed living in the freedom and the joy of Christ. Is his fullness of life real and immediate to me? Or am I just singing a tired old song back from the days when it was? Is there more to salvation than avoiding eternal punishment? In a way, my own journey with Christ has been like the progress of a riverbound ferryman who climbs up a mountain into the range of sights he never imagined. He never imagined. And it has changed the way that I pray for others. It is absolutely right that those who accept Christ are saved from, from the deadly hold of sin and selfishness and the just punishment that follows our original condition. But we are saved for as well, so that we may have life and have it abundantly. And we are on our way home to a home that answers our deepest yearnings. The chief beauty of heaven isn't its desirability over hell. The beauty of our home is everything beyond the river crossing into faith. It is heralded in the colors of creation that captivate our sight, in the music that breaks our hearts with gravity, merriment, triumph, and tenderness. My breath catches and my head bows every time I read this description of its majesty from Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the city where God will be with us, where the maker of gardeners and artists and engineers and storytellers and caregivers dwells, and its radiance is the Lamb. He who became flesh with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him will be the splendor that extinguishes the need for other lights. He is the beauty that makes our heartache over others a right and worthy pain. I know that I cannot give those whom I love the eyes to see or the spirit to respond to Christ. But my invitation, my song, and my welcome to others will be truer if I am extending them fresh from the joys of my home country and from walking with the one who is its king. So my prayer is that the air of it will remain on us like the ferryman, so strong and so bracing that it incites others to ask us about our hope. Chipped and fragile as we are, may, may there be a glimpse of the wide grace and new freedom that awaits them, so that those who seek him hear no mere call of detached Christian duty, but a high and sweet note to come further up and further in. amazing, Amy.
Before 